I'm Andrew Davis, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Berkus, best-selling author, speaker, and business school professor. And each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with outstanding thinkers and incredible doers. All of these interviews are designed to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date. Make sure you never miss an interview by joining our community. You can sign up at davidberkuscom slash podcast. Click on any of the episodes and there's signups right there or straight at davidberkus.com. You can also, if you're listening on your smartphone and you're in the United States, just text the word radio free to 33444. We'll send you some amazing resources that we can't really share in audio format on the podcast, including the Radio Free Leader Starter Kit. This is a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox. So again, to get all of that, just go to davidberkuscom slash podcast or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. Now let's get started with this week's interview. So who are you and what do you do? I am Andrew Davis, and I'm a writer and keynote speaker. That's a pretty succinct description of a guy that I know for a fact has a, a pretty <laughs> diverse and well-experienced um, history. I mean, we're talking former childhood TV star. We're, ta- <laughs> we're talking former owner of a major uh, branding and marketing agency. We're talking guy who gets away with screaming on stage, which, you know, you said keynote speaker, but it's the, the same sort of thing. Um, so come on, there's a, there's a bit more there, shall we? Yeah, there's a bit more there. Yeah. I mean, well, I started my career in television. So I, I always think of myself as a content creator uh, and, a, and a writer, I think first and foremost. So uh, yeah, I mean, if we dive really deep, I started in television. Um, you know, I, I worked on, <laughs> I worked in local TV first, where I basically produced a, a call-in radio show. Um, it was a nightly call-in radio show, like a, a left-wing Republican host who yelled at the television. I'm sorry, a um, left-wing his, Republican host. Uh, sorry. Uh, sorry, right wing. Okay, because right I was going to say, man, that would be an interesting that's, show. That's an interesting show. No, no, we, this was in Boston, Massachusetts. So it was a right wing Republican, sh- you know, show host named uh, Charles Adler was his name, and he would just yell at the TV for as long as possible. And and the goal was to light up all the phone lines with angry Democrats who wanted to yell back at him. And my job was essentially to decide who was the least drunk person to put on the air. Uh, and so that's how I got my start in television. And then I, I ended up uh, leaving local television and I worked for the Today Show as a producer on Weekend Today uh, and then worked on the Today Show producing you know, for the regular weekly Today Show, uh, which are to- two totally different teams. And then uh, I wrote for Charles Kuralt who a lot of people don't remember, but he was an amazing storyteller. Uh, and I worked on his last show, which was called An American Moment. And it was it was an amazing show, actually, uh, telling stories about, you know, things you, you just didn't know exist in America. Uh, I wrote a chapter for that book, for An American Moment with Charles Kuralt. And then uh, I got my dream job, actually, at the Jim Henson Company. So I worked for the Muppets uh, for a few years in the late 90s, uh, which is actually when the Muppets were falling apart, David. It was like, it was like uh, uh, Muppets from Space was one of the movies I worked on, which is not a great Muppet movie. Uh, I worked on Elmo and Grouchland, which was also not very good. Uh, those you can skip. 
Uh, I did work on Bear in the Big Blue House, which is an amazing show. Uh, so, so well, I mean, uh, let's let's be fair though; it could have been worse. You could have been working on like Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal, right? So uh, at, at least you were working on on the Muppets. <laughs> There's a huge fan base for Labyrinth and the Dark Crystal. You know, they're doing they're doing a sequel to uh, to to Labyrinth. They're working on that. I did know that. Yeah. I was trying to push that to the dark recesses of my mind. But yeah, thank you. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, so I did work on great stuff, and I met amazing people, and I actually learned a ton about Mark marketing there. And then the, the dot-com boom happened and I started working outside of television because you could make more money, uh, you know, working in, in the startup world. And so I worked for a succession of startups as a marketer, which to me just meant telling stories, um, you know, to help inspire people to do something they didn't know they wanted to do. Uh, and uh, and then I started a, a marketing agency in 2001 with actually a, a television journalist I'd met, um, you know, 10 years earlier. Uh, and we started an agency called Tipping Point Labs, and then I sold that um, in 2012. Uh, and then since then, I wrote a book called Brandscaping uh, and, and wandered around the world speaking about that, uh, and then wrote a book called Town Inc. Um, in 2015, and, and I've been speaking about that for the last two years. Uh, and so, yeah, so it's it's been a, quite the journey. But, I mean, I figured you were asking, you know, who am I today and what do I do today, um, not – not all that backstory. Well, but the, but come on, the backstory is hugely important, right? Um, it is. For, so for so for context, I mean, so Andrew and I, uh, for those of you listening, like, why are these two even talking, and why do they sound like they know each other? Um, we we met in June of last year, and one of the things that really fascinated about me is is someone you are someone who sort of figured out. I don't want to call it the formula. But at least figured out kind of the how behind uh, staking a claim and getting known for an idea, right? And um, that's kind of what I mean. That's what Town Inc is about, and doing it in sort of a um, a community basis, but also yeah. just even in your own story around being known as like the guy in a certain industry for for a certain something. And I think you know, I think this is a hugely important thing for a lot of people to learn, whether you are. Um, working in an organization and you want to be known as the go-to person for this subject matter inside the organization or whether you're like yourself where you build almost all of your income off of being known externally and getting invited to speak at places and having people buy copies of your book and all that sort of stuff. And I think your background is important for that because like you said, came from TV, came from this, do you understand? I think that's what gives you sort of an understanding of all of those things. So, you know, your context is important. Yeah, I, I'm, maybe I downplayed it too much, but it's, it's uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I definitely still think like a television producer, the stuff I learned very, very early on in television helped me understand how to express ideas, how to, you know, get people to, to listen to a story, to understand the impact of a story. Um, and I'm still refining the way it works, but I think, uh, you know, a, a lot of us, especially in the professional world, no matter what you do, um, you know, really rely very heavily on uh, ensuring that the experiences we have or the experience we have in the industry we're in or the job we're in will define our future. And I've really learned um, over the course of my career that, you know, experience is essentially overrated. Uh, what really matters are the the way you express the ideas you have and the frameworks that are behind them. Those are the things that really set you apart as a visionary with something to, you know, that that is worth listening to and and something that will inspire others to get on board and move with you. All right, so let's go there, right? And in, in how <laughs> we do that. No, I mean, in, in particular, like, 
um, you know, I, so many people, whether it's inside an organization and you're trying to sell an idea or be known as a person, or whether you're, like you said, trying to build out this um, persona and this, I, I, I hate to use the term personal brand, but we apply it. Yeah. So much of it rides on not just being sort of the smart guy you or girl, it's, it's being known, uh, staking a claim for lack of a better term on a certain subject, but that requires knowing how to express the idea in a super simple way. And I feel like that's where a lot of people trip up because they, you know, once you know everything about something, it's really hard to state it in a super simple way. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I think, uh, I think it's really important to, to spend enough time with the idea that you, um, you don't feel like you have to, you know, uh, tell everybody everything to prove that you know enough about the topic. In fact, when I wrote Brandscaping, um, I had this amazing editor named L- Lisa Merton Beats. Um, and she, she, I sent her the first version of the book. Um, and, you know, she essentially sent it back with these giant, um, you know, red marks over pages of stuff. Um, and in a lot of the the notes on the side of these huge, like five pages at a time, would just be redded out, and it would just say S T Y S. And I, I, so I had like a day where I was just so livid that she had cut so much, and I didn't know what S T Y S stood for. Um, and uh, I got on the call with her, and I was like, Lisa, you know, you cut a huge amount of the book here. What is S T Y S? And she said, Stop telling me you're smart. Um, and I was like, well, okay, what does that mean? And she's like, you know, there's a lot of stuff here that you're, uh, that you've included that proves you did a ton of research on the impact of finding Nemo on the global population of clownfish, that stuff, your research doesn't matter, uh, to the, the reader. What matters is just the key elements of that research. Simplify this and stop trying to prove to me that you're smarter than me and that you did the research. And that fundamentally changed the way I tell stories whether written or in person or even when I'm pitching an idea to an individual in a conference room, I really focus on ensuring that I don't have to prove I'm smart uh, and I eliminate all the details that are irrelevant to the story I'm telling. Okay, so this is particularly troubling for me as someone who's made their career <laughs> as as someone who's sort of smart, right? And you know, I mean, think if 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 I dare say, this is where a lot of I think early career professionals get into trouble um, because they're trying to prove themselves, right? Yes. And, the, and the first thing you try and prove yourself with is that that you try to prove that you know your stuff, right? And that's even yes. I mean, that's the phrase of this so and so knows. Their stuff. So, I mean, how do you walk this balance? Is it just how you package the idea? It, it packages it in such a way where you're hinting that if you need it, you've got this wealth of of knowledge you could bust on them, but you're not gonna or or what? Yeah. Well, what I realized, uh, it, like personally, pitching ideas as an as an agency is that they don't really care much about the details until they care about the idea. Um, so if all the details are getting in the way of them getting excited about the idea you're pitching, then they don't need the details and they'll ask when they're ready or need them. And yeah, it's important that you have those or that you know those, (laughs) uh, because if they ask, you certainly don't want to, you know, sound like you had no idea. You just made up a story. Uh, you want to know that you have all the backup to, to prove it, but it's much more important that you, you realize you need to have a ton of humility, um, 
And this isn't about proving you know better or you have genius ideas or, you know, you've done a ton of research. Um, it's really about ensuring that you tell, express the idea in such a simple way that they now express interest, lean forward and, and ask you a bunch of questions that allow you to dive deeper into the next level that gets them more excited. Um, or even, I mean, we used to, you know, when we started an agency, we didn't know much about running an agency. We were television guys who had happened to work in marketing, um, and realized that most marketers aren't great at telling stories. So we'll tell some stories. And when we went to our first meetings, um, you know, we just kind of understood that agencies set up hour long meetings and we thought these meetings are so long and the presentations are so boring. So we started setting up just 25 minute meetings and focusing on getting one idea across in about 20 meeting, 20 minutes and, and letting the time constraint, um, get people excited so that they would either extend the time or say, you've got to come back. Cause I have a ton of questions and I'm really excited about it. The next steps. Um, and it fundamentally changed the way we pitched, but also eliminated all the unnecessary stuff from a presentation. Like we realized that you could cut about 70% of our, our pitch presentations down to just the essence of the idea. So if we, if we had 10 slides originally, we now were walking in with only three. Um, and it, you know, that means you've got to take out the slide. That's all about how cool your agency is and what your agency's mission statement was because they don't care until they're excited about the idea you're presenting them. Hmm. So, all right. So you, you talked about you cut a certain thing and you changed the way that you pitched. Did you, is there like a, did you ever stumble upon sort of a formula? Like here's the best way to present the idea, the sort of simple statement around to present the idea. I mean, to, you do this in town Inc with the, I live in the blank capital of the world, but is, yeah. does, is that actually derived from a broader sort of template for how to state your idea that you've uncovered? Yeah. Well, I mean, we, because we came out of television, I think we just, and we had lots of experience pitching television shows in LA's to agencies and, uh, you know, like eight, you know, big agents like CAA or to, you know, brands like ABC and NBC and Fox. And I, I think we didn't know any better. So we pitched like we pitched television shows. Um, and essentially that means you need to boil down the idea into, you know, uh, like a title and a log line and a title, you know, for the show was something catchy and, and interesting. But even if you're pitching the most mundane idea for, a, you know, a business reorg, naming it and giving it a log line, a log line was essentially. Yeah. Um, thank you, by the way, for those of us that didn't spend their first half of their career <laughs> in television. What is a log line? A logline. So a logline actually has a cool origin story. This is the kind of stuff that I know you and I love. Maybe the the audience listening doesn't. You care, have permission but, to show us how smart you are, by the way. Yeah. So go for it. <laughs> Here's where a logline. So when I first started in television, we had the TV guide. Do you remember the TV guide, the printed magazine that used to come out at the you know like in your newspaper? Um, you're you're not old enough to remember. That no, thing. stop anyway. it. I worked at a supermarket when I was in high school, oh, and so I had to stock the TV, the TV guide, guide next to the candy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So basically, we, we had to write what, what I would now consider a tweet. You had to summarize an entire episode of your show in a series of small boxes, and then you had to fax it to the TV guide, and that's what they would put in that week's you know, uh, TV guide for you. And that became known as a logline, a short but snappy description of whatever you're presenting that is meant to get people excited about what's coming next. Okay? So... It was essentially just a, a short way to sum up a, an entire presentation, and from there we we you know we basically followed a very simple um, uh, you know script that 
that people have used for years in pitching television shows and was really successful. And the, the concept was basically uh, you, you have to paint a picture of the idea first. So you, you need to, uh, you, you know, really kind of uh, po- uh, show the problem instead of tell the problem. Um, and so like Gene Roddenberry was actually a master of this and he's one of the people that when he pitched Star Trek came up with it. So he, he basically, you know, came up with a log line that compared Star Trek to like Buck Rogers, Gulliver's Travels and, and Wagon Train, which were three programs of the time. And, and that simple log line made everybody excited about what was coming next, but also allowed them to picture what might be coming next. And from there, it was about getting them into the problem and, and painting the picture. And then you pose the solution uh, to the problem in a very simple way. What's the big idea writ large? And then ask them if they're interested in the idea. And that's the entire pitch. So, all right. So let's review for template's sake because I'm still fascinated with log lines. Um, so, so, <laughs> so there were three, there were three, fa- three uh, phases in that that you outlined, right? Yeah. Okay. Do them again. So first one is basically title. You, you got to have a good title and log line. You know what I mean? Of the log line, it seemed like there were three components of like what a good one was. Oh, well, that was Gene Roddenberry's. But like, here's another one. I, I've memorized tons of these over the years. But like Fear Factor was like ordinary people facing their fears by competing against each other in outrageously de- devised stunts, right? Like that's – it's just a small summary of the the idea you're about to explain. And when you're pitching a TV show, l- let me just paint a picture for you. You walk into uh, ABC or you walk into Creative Artist Agency and here's what happens. You have 20 minutes with an agent sitting in front of you. And what you get to do is say, hey, I have a great idea for a show. It's called Fear Factor. Ordinary people face their fears by competing against each other and outrageously devise stunts. And the agent goes, I don't like it. Give me another one. Or if he likes it, he goes, oh, that's interesting. Tell me a little more, all right? So if you think of whatever idea you're pitching in the same way, you want to give a title and a logline that's exciting and gets them excited to the point at which they're like, tell me a little more. And that's the point at which you paint a picture of the problem. Don't give me stats about the problem. Don't tell me that you know the market is $40 billion and it's, there's this great opportunity. Show me the problem. Don't tell it to me. And if you were doing fear factor, the way you show it is you, you essentially have to in a very early um, you know, pitch, get them to understand the key elements of your log line. So what are their fears? You'd be like, hey, uh, you know, this guy's afraid of snakes. Okay, that, that's scary. What do you, what's the outrageous stunt? You're going to put him in a, a, an enclosed box with, a head, with a goggles on, and he's going to have to sit there for at least three minutes without getting his head out. And if he does that, he wins $10,000. Like that's essentially a short description that gets you more excited about the show. The next step – is is essentially tell me what the big idea is and in the show world on fear factor you would talk more about the show mechanics like here's how the show is going to work it's going to be on a giant outdoor stage and that's what the the big idea looks like uh and if you're pitching a business idea it's essentially here's the solution to the problem we just showed you and the last step is do you want to buy this idea basically and in tv it was like you do those three steps and they would say, this is a good idea. I'm, I want to pitch it to ABC. Or they would say, no, you know what? I think this has kind of been done. Uh, let's give me another idea. 
Hmm. You know what's you know what's funny is in hearing you kind of describe that you've got three parts, but it, it's how similar. And it took me writing two books to really realize this, but how similar it is to the format of every what we call big idea book out there, right? Yeah. So in the nonfiction world, you either have like in, you have like celebrity memoirs, you know. So this yep. is you know D- Donald Trump's Art of the Deal does not actually teach you how to do a deal; it's really just a memoir. Um, then you have the instructionals, you know. So this is literally like forty-eight days Step to the work one. you love, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, and then you have the big idea books, the Gladwells and Pinks, and yep. you, and you and me, right? And and yep. the, it's what's funny is you can describe almost every successful big idea book as you think this, but it's actually this, right? Which is only two steps. You think this, which is sort of, I mean, you can outline the problem, right? There's a problem associated with thinking that, but really it's this, right? Drive, Daniel Pink. You think that it's, uh, that carrots and sticks work, but actually in creative work, you need different motivators, right? Outliers is like, you think that uh, we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and individual attributes uh, are what cause success, but actually the external factors are way more important, right? Right. Right. Um, every single one of them sort of follows that that format, and I think the implications for that are like that's the the reason I think this is so fascinating is that's like the template. Even if you're just trying to sell your idea inside your organization, it needs that sort of log line. It needs that that catchy yes. like it is this. Yeah, it, that's exactly right. Like here's the here's. In the business world, I've realized that there are tons and tons of presentations, right? And in the television world, um, no one ever said, let's put together a presentation and, and you know go to ABC and spend an hour trying to present this television show. They always called it a pitch. And when we were going to craft a pitch, we called it crafting a pitch. And I think in the business world, if we approach what we call presentations as pitches and spent more time crafting them, we'd be much more successful. And if you just ask yourself how you could simplify the ideas you present, um, you'd be, your, your ideas would get more traction more often and move much faster than you can imagine today. Hmm. Oh, I think that's, that's really, that's quite fascinating. And, you know, you, all right. So just to transition a little bit, you've seen that out, you know, rolled out, not just in television, not just like inside organizations like we talked about, but in town Inc, you kind of outline how you do this for a whole community and not just get yourself known as something, but get a, a sort of a whole community known for something. It start. I mean, it starts kind of the same way, right. Of staking this claim of like, this is what we're about. Um, but I'd imagine you have to go a little bit further to get an entire town <laughs> known as something, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, for Town Inc., um, yeah, I really spent a lot of time trying to figure out why some towns were successful and others weren't. And, you know, I really did believe that it was going to come down to some economic development policy they had or, you know, some amazing uh, tax incentive they had given to big businesses to move to town. And and as I started investigating these cities and towns, it actually came down to the fact that every one of the towns that was more successful than a similar town with all the same kinds of resources, even in the same area of the United States, was that every one of the towns that was successful had a business visionary who had essentially championed a really big idea um, that looked like a claim. And I, I you you had alluded to to it before, David, but it's like like I realized that the people that essentially filled in a blank, like your city is the blank capital of the world, 
had basically set in stone a vision for the future of that city or town and then relentlessly pursued it. And they all pursued it in very similar ways. Like they used the geographic assets and and the myths and origin stories behind the, the place to create what I called location envy, to create this belief that you would be much more successful in this industry or in this profession if you moved to this place and built your business here. Um, and so you know, it's it's actually really similar to pitching these ideas that we're talking about. They simplified the idea to the point at which it was very easy to repeat. Um, and they also created an emotional attachment to the idea in the minds of the people that they wanted to attract. So let, I'll give you a really quick example. But Warsaw, Indiana is the orthopedic capital of the world. Okay. It's in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it's a beautiful oasis in like what, you know, the former rust belt of America, like all the towns around it are essentially falling apart. But Warsaw, Indiana's orthopedic capital of the world has attracted businesses from around the world to relocate there because it's got all the infrastructure they need. It's got all the professional resources they now need. And it all started with one visionary, a guy named Reverend Dupuis, who started Dupuis Orthopedics in 1895 and a, a nonprofit that in 19. 90 decided to call itself the orthopedic capital of the world. And they wake up every morning trying to ensure that everyone in the orthopedic industry knows there's not a better place to do business than there. And it creates like perfect competition and all these things that make these cities much more successful. It's, it's really amazing to see. Well, but there, but there, I mean, there is a whole path to travel between staking that claim and being known as something and, and picking the right thing, by the way, is hugely important, mm -hmm. right? I, li yeah, I, li <laughs> I live in a town that decided they wanted to be the an antique capital of the state, but that's not like no one cares about that. So it hasn't really yeah. worked all that well. I mean, I say they decided. They decided in like 1985. And I think now <laughs> we're finally like giving, giving up that idea. But um, you can still see a billboard here or there. Um, but, but anyway, there's a whole, I mean, it's one thing to have a visionary guy go, okay, I'm an orthopedist and I'm going to say this is the orthopedic cap. It's a whole other thing to actually get all of those resources and build it from that claim to the movement too. Oh, it's just, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, what's amazing is it doesn't take as long as you'd think when you have the right claim. And you're right, you know, picking the right claim is really important. And there are things that go into that. Like you actually have to have a cornerstone, uh, like which means a business that's already been successful there. Like like upstate New York, um, there's there's a, a there's a basically Chobani was founded in upstate New York, um, and Ch Chobani the yogurt people. Excuse me. And, you know, it's now like a three billion dollar a year industry. And Chobani was a cornerstone for upstate New York staking the claim as being the, the Greek yogurt capital of the world. And and if you have a cornerstone and you're the, you know, the, the head of Chobani, like Hamdi Yukulai is, all of a sudden that connection to a claim is actually very, very simple. You also have to have some natural resources or the resources that will that make it that place unique. Like upstate New York has lots and lots of milk. They have tons of water. Both of these things you need to make lots of Greek yogurt because it takes like seven times the amount of, of yogurt, of water to make Greek yogurt than normal yogurt. Uh, and they also are like strategically located. And this is actually the key to their claim being successful. Basically where Chobani is based in upstate New York, there are uh, one, basically a third of the entire American population is within one day's drive 
of the Chobani factory, which means for a disposable product, something that you have to get on the shelves quickly, this is a huge asset. And all of a sudden, with that simple cornerstone and the Greek yogurt capital of the world uh, and a visionary, there was actually a guy named Stephen who was the, the person who started telling other companies that were the Greek yogurt capital of the world. They created this location envy, but also had just a few very simple points that proved why Chobani was successful there. And he was able to all of a sudden not just attract other Greek yogurt manufacturers, like the biggest ones in the world, actually a German company relocated there, um, but all sorts of other companies that were in the same predicament as Greek yogurt. We need to get our perishables on the shelves very rapidly, and they have all the resources we need, lots of power, lots of water, lots of employees to work at these plants, and all of a sudden they're booming. And it's only taken five years to, to make that claim work. But the key is the story was simple. They told an origin story and with a cornerstone. So they were able to talk about how Chobani was so successful. Then they gave three reasons that Chobani was successful. And they said, if you want to be part of this growth, there is no better place to be because we are the Greek yogurt capital of the world. You can try to do Greek yogurt in California. Good luck, my friend. But if you really want to do it, there's a better place to do it. And that's what created the Location Envy. Simple story and a really simple concept. So if you're using my example, one of the things that doesn't work is the location, right? If you're trying to be the antique capital, you probably can't be in a state that was founded in 1907. You probably (laughs) want to be in a state and a city that's a couple hundred years old, not a hundred years old. But anyway. Yeah, it's it's missing an origin story, right? Right. It's It's like – there's no reason it's the antique capital of the world. Like I was just in Asheville, North Carolina, and I was ta- I was I was meeting with a company called Diamond Brand Gear, which was founded like 75 years ago, and they've been based in Asheville, North Carolina, and they make tents for the military, and they make awesome camping gear. And I, I kept asking them, "Why are you here? Like, why are you in Asheville, North Carolina?" And they kept saying, "Well, the climate is nice, the people are friendly," and I was like, "Look, these these everywhere." Uh, in the United States has the exact same assets as you're telling me. Well, that's not that's not true at all because the the people aren't friendly uh, in California and New York and the climate isn't friendly in Alaska. So, but okay. But but there are other places that could claim the same thing. That the lifestyle is nice. These were the answers and these are the answers most people give. Then somebody in the room piped up to say that Smoky, Smoky Mountain National Park is right there. Like essentially at, they are in Smoky Mountain National Park. And they said, and this is the key, Smoky Mountain National Park is the most accessible national park in the United States. And one of the reasons that Diamond Brand is there is because they promote family-friendly camping experiences with all the gear and stuff they make. And there's no better place to test camping gear on a 75-year-old guy that can't hike very far and they need to drive in, or a 13-year-old boy who really doesn't want to be there and is only interested in a waterfall that's close to the street, and parents who really want to go and have a great camping experience with a multi-generational family. And that's when it becomes interesting because you're able to tie the place to the success of Diamond Brand and you now have a story that's worth telling that can be very, very simple. Hmm. Now that is that is interesting. I think that is intriguing. And do you think, to some extent, too, it you could do this with um, companies and sort of branding a, around a certain thing? Like you need an origin story, you need a first successful product, and then you are the go-to company for that. Like to use yeah. to, to use a, a totally overused example. If you think about something like Apple, 
right? Like the iPod when they, I mean the 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 rebirth of Apple. Let's say the yeah. iPod was like a piece of hardware in a market that was geared towards like tech and all this sort of stuff. And then suddenly it was this beautifully designed, elegant luxury piece of hardware. And then you stake from that initial origin product. To, I mean, they're literally the only luxury technology brand out there. They're not. They're not the best technology brand. They're the only luxury only. brand. That's right. Yeah. I mean, yes, you can do this with almost any company, and most companies that have too many products have a really hard time doing this. They have to stake their claim on the one thing that will define their brand, and the rest will fall out from that. Hmm. No, I think that's... it's real. These are tough choices to make. So let me ask. Um, let me ask you a question. Yeah. You know all this stuff. How do you do this with you? How uh, so? I mean, for, for me, um, <laughs> I I try to reinvent myself from a claim standpoint. I would get, uh, like in the loosest sense of the term, like every three years, I would say there's a new big idea that I'm really excited about talking about. Like usually every three years, and I'm always interested in trying to express the idea in the most simple terms. Um, and inspire people to at least question the, the, the things they're currently doing and find new ways. So like I basically have like four things I try to work on every, every few years to reinvent myself. Like, but I keep them really focused on the delivery of the idea. So like number one, I try to make sure that I assume the, the audience I want to attract knows everything I wish they knew. Because then I don't tell them, spend a lot of time teaching them the things I hope they know already as fundamentals to make my principle work. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So the second thing uh, um, I I work on um, essentially expressing, and these are very personal to me. Maybe these don't matter to everybody else, but I I try to to make sure that that I remember that the audience doesn't care what I know. but they they're they're really excited about the outcome of the things that I've you know uncovered and can express in a very simple way, um, and that keeps me humble I think uh, or I hope it does. Um, the the third thing I make sure is that I I'm so excited about the idea and the expression of the idea that I can present it with unbridled enthusiasm and make no excuses for the idea. Like I'm gonna. I'm going to launch this on you. It may not work for you, but I'm not going to make excuses on your behalf nor for the idea that I'm expressing. Um, and the last one, <laughs> the last one is that I, I think, and this is just something that I've personally believed for a long time. If you have fun presenting, pitching, uh, you know, working on, uh, exploring any idea. Um, then that fun is in, is is infectious with the audience you're in front of, the boss you're presenting to, the people in the room. Um, and if you can't have fun doing what you're doing, it means you're not you're not uh, you're not doing the right thing. Like you should quit and find something else, um, because that fun is so infectious. It really does change the reception of every idea you have. And the visionaries I met in 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 Town Inc. they they have so much fun exploring crazy ideas like becoming you know becoming the Disneyland of quilting or the you know it's just it was just nuts to find these people that put fun in front of everything they do and the infection that it creates around them is palpable it changes the entire environment in a city because they're having a good time no, that's good advice for pretty much everybody whether you're trying to make a claim in a city be known for something um, etc and it's actually a perfect segue into the first question that we ask all guests. 
Yay. Um, we, asked five, we asked all guests five questions. Uh, and the first one is literally, what's the best advice you've ever received? The, the, <laughs> the, the best advice I've ever received uh, was, <laughs> was essentially from uh, a guy who used to fire people at Dow Chemical. Uh, he was my boss at, at one of the startups I worked at. He was the CEO of a startup called ThinkMart. And um, he, I couldn't decide if I wanted to take the job. And he took me out for drinks and he said, um, look, any new job you take should be fun, challenging, and rewarding. And then he defined those three in a very specific way. Like you need to think that the the product and the environment is fun. Um, you need to be challenged by the job. Like it needs to be a monumental undertaking um, because if it's not, you'll get bored pretty quickly. Um, and when he talked about rewarding, I thought he was going to talk about salary. But and he did say the money part is important. But he talked about the fact that you need to feel appreciated and make sure that no matter what you what job you take, you're rewarded for the effort and energy energy you take in, you, you put into it. Um, and I've, I've really found that advice to be true every time I've taken a bad job. I, I compromised on one of those three. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, well, now you don't actually have a job. You're sort of solopreneur, right? Right. Writer and speaker. So hopefully it meets those three. Um, it, it also, it's a good lead into the second question, which is what is the ideal workday look like for you? The ideal workday for me actually looks uh, – I start really, really early. Um, so I usually get up at like 3.30 or 4 in the morning. That um, is I, really early. Hang on. Oh, time yeah. out. Yeah. Some, pe- some people here listening go to bed at 3 or 4 in the morning. No. I, I, actually, I work with people that go to you know, go what to bed. What time do you go to bed then? Like 4.30? Uh, it's pretty early. Yeah. I mean like 8.30 or 9 is usually my bedtime. It's, okay. it's kind of my wife is constantly embarrassed by it because it's like, you know, we go out for drinks with friends and it's like 915. And I'm like, I got to go to bed, guys. Like, this is so late for me. So, yeah. So I get up really, really early. And I find for me, I work best creatively early in the morning. So I try to write in the morning. Um, but it's I mean, I don't know how detailed you want to get, David, but I like I have like a whole routine I go through. I, I you know, I essentially try to plan my day. Um, but you know, I get my creative, my most creative stuff out in the morning so that by 7am I go for like a, I call it my morning constitutional, but I mean a walk, not, I don't go to the bathroom. I walk around my neighborhood, uh, which really helps me clear my head. And then I, I, I really enjoy getting on the phone for a few hours with people I really want to spend time with, they could be mentors or people that have heard me speak, um, and so that's a big part of my ideal day. I hear about lots of new challenges and questions there. Uh, and then uh, I usually try to take, I love to take a nap in the afternoon. That's not, I, well, it's probably because you woke up at three in the morning. It is, it is. Uh, <laughs> so I try to nap for like half an hour and that usually revitalizes me for a couple of hours. I do some really task driven stuff generally in the evening because my brain doesn't work very well. And then, uh, yeah, I like to have dinner with my wife, relax, maybe watch some TV uh, and then go to bed. And start all over again. My ideal day doesn't actually include traveling and speaking. I find it so disruptive. Yeah, I mean, I would agree. I, it's almost like in what we do, you have to have two different types of ideal days. There's the That's ideal true. ideal day yeah. at home or at work, and then there's the ideal on the road day, right? Which That's you know, oh, so true. So yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so, what are you reading right now? I am. Oh man, I've been reading. Actually, I like to read a few books at a time. I don't know if you do this. <laughs> I don't. I so I don't like to. I just end up doing. If that makes maybe sense. Maybe that's 
that actually might be the case with me. Um, well, because you have, I have like the book that's by my nightstand that I'm reading consistently. That's a hardcover yeah. book that I like to flip yeah. through. But yeah. I don't take that one with me on travel because you can't fit it on an iPad. It's easier to just take one device. So yeah. then there's inevitably the Kindle or iBook that I'm flipping through, right? Yeah. Um, so there's <laughs> at least two. And then, yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I've been reading um, Radical Focus. I cannot remember the author's name. Um, uh, that's an I, ironic I title of, of a book that you're reading alongside another book. You know that, right? <laughs> I do. Re- I realize that only when I finish a chapter uh, and pick up the other book. Um, and the, the the other book that I'm almost done with, but I really, really have enjoyed, was um, Simply Brilliant. Have you read that? Uh, William Taylor? William Taylor. Yeah, yeah I haven't read it yet, but I have it. Yeah, that was such a good book. I just finished it. So, um, so those are the two that are top of mind. Oh, I like it. Um, what do you believe that most people disagree with? Oh man. Uh, what what do I believe that most people disagree with? Yeah, I think, most people look at you like you're crazy when you promote it or, or what have you. I think most people uh, it's, it's not an idea. It's, it's most people suffer from something that a friend of mine named Carla Johnson finally termed for me. Um, she calls it brand detachment disorder. Um, and she she expresses it as when I teach people something or I tell them a story. Um, they cannot see it working for themselves, right? Like it just, they cannot make the leap, even if the lesson is very clear and simple. Um, they kind of detach from the concept um, or even the lesson and just believe it won't work for them. Um, and so I think that's the biggest objection I have to anything I've ever presented, um, even pitched as a television concept, is like, I cannot see this working for me. Um, and it's, it's, I do actually take take it as a criticism on the way I present, and I've always been trying to fix it. Like, can I make this more universal so less people detach from the idea? Hmm. I think that's interesting. And, and knowing that, um, again, that most people are going to sort of push back and disagree with it gives you, again, that advantage in shaping the idea, something we've been talking about the whole time. I love yeah. it. So our our final question, the title of the show is Radio Free Leader. You've studied, I think, leaders in a variety of domains from marketing, from television, to even sort of community leaders that rise up and get their community known for something. In your view, what makes someone a leader? What makes someone a leader to me is someone with a big enough vision that other people can't believe it's it's possible. Interesting. Interesting. And then, I mean, that, that goes back to the idea of what do you believe that most people disagree with, right? It's yeah. got to be a vision most people disagree with. That's right. That's interesting. Well, cool. So we've talked about a bunch of different stuff today uh, that's really, I mean, it's funny because Brandscaping and Town Inc. are both very sort of specific books on specific context. And I feel like we really hit it like the idea they orbit around, which is how do you get known for something? So depending, I, normally I say, hey, go check out this book. But really, it depends on what part of this interview you resonated with. But they're both fantastic, Brandscaping, Town Inc. Uh, Andrew Davis is pretty easy to find. Um, it's the one who's not uh, a former fairly well known historical figure um, who's been dead for a hundred years. It's the other one you find when you type it into Google. So, so do that um, and check him out. We'll have links to the books and the show notes and all that sort of stuff too. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Hey, thanks David for having me. This has been so much fun and I really love the show.